If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview with the historian Thomas Penn. Thomas is the author of a new book, The Brothers York, which tells the story of the Wars of the Roses through three charismatic brothers of the Yorkist dynasty. Edward IV, Richard III and George, Duke of Clarence. Our editor, Rob Attar, met Thomas at the Penguin offices in London to find out more about them. We often think of the Wars of the Roses as being fought between houses of Lancaster and York. But to what extent would you actually say that this was a dispute between three brothers? Well, Rob, I think it's true to say that the Wars of the Roses were fought between these two warring families, these two great families, the houses of Lancaster and York, rivals for the English crown. And that was certainly the case in 1461, when at the great Battle of Towton, which was fought on Palm Sunday, as we know, in a raging blizzard and was, in fact, the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil, maybe some 28,000 dead, so the chroniclers tell us. At Towton, most of the English nobility are on the battlefield, ranged against each other. 
And there you do see the body politic split into two, Lancaster against York. From there on in, the wars begin to mutate and they turn inwards. Edward IV is on the throne, the first Yorkist king of England. And over the course of the next decades, the wars become less a conflict between two families and more a family at war with itself. And as I say in the book, for me, this conflict does crystallise around this relationship between these three brothers. And of course, you have a situation where in 1470, Edward is turfed off the throne, part, in part by his own brother, his middle brother, George, Duke of Clarence. He flees into exile, comes back six months later in 1471, makes up with Clarence, and he, Clarence and the youngest brother, Richard, who of course becomes Richard III, symbolise this new unity of the House of York. A contemporary poet says the knot is knit again. After the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury, which are these two defining battles for the House of York, in which the House of Lancaster is all but eliminated, the three brothers ride at the head of their armies, their triumphant armies, into London together, shoulder to shoulder. From there on in, it all goes horribly sour. You have a situation in which, in the 1470s, Richard and Clarence are at each other's throats over who will inherit the great estates and titles of the Earl of Warwick, Warwick the Kingmaker, who's dead. Both brothers, George and Richard, have married Warwick's daughters. Then in 1478, of course, Clarence is murdered by Edward, the king, supposedly drowned in a vat of Malmsey wine. Then in 1483, Edward dies quite unexpectedly, and he leaves his two sons, who are the heirs to his dynasty. And then, of course, you have a situation in which Richard seizes power, imprisons the boys, they're never seen again. And in what happens then during the course of Richard's reign is that you have two factions, essentially, white on white. And this is what happens at the Battle of Bosworth, the defining Battle of Bosworth, on the 22nd of August, 1485, which we see, we are accustomed to seeing as red against white, as Henry Tudor the Lancastrian against Richard the Yorkist. But in fact, Henry Tudor is the figurehead for a Yorkist faction, that faction loyal to the memory of Edward IV, loyal to the princes, who have fled abroad and quite astonishingly have settled on this exiled Lancastrian with barely a smattering of royal blood to be their leader. So Henry is more than anything else, he's a Yorkist figurehead, and we need to understand that in order to understand how this relationship between these three brothers turns so sour. So, yes, Bosworth is white on white. It's a factional conflict. That's an interesting point you just raised about Henry, who you've obviously written about in your, your previous book. Why did the Yorkists settle on him as a figurehead, considering that he did have Lancastrian connections? It's an interesting question. In part, this has been done before, we have to cast our minds back to 1470, when Clarence and Warwick the Kingmaker, the, the very powerful cousin and mentor to these three brothers, flee abroad, and they join the Lancastrian exiles who are at the court of Louis XI of France, and they make a treaty, the Treaty of Angers, in which Clarence is stitched into the Lancastrian royal line. He, he marries Warwick's older daughter, as I say, and then Edward of Lancaster is betrothed to Warwick's younger daughter. 
And what's supposed to happen is that there's going to be this, this unification between Lancaster and York, strangely enough, this strangely confected unification. So there, of course, it doesn't work in 1470. It, it all goes horribly wrong very quickly. But there you have a model, in, in a way, for what happens in 1483. After Richard comes to the throne in June 1483, rebellion very quickly flares up, as we know. And it fails. This is rebellion which is involving a great many household men, Yorkists faithful to Edward IV and the princes, as I've said before. It fails, and they flee abroad. And so they know they have a model for how to go into exile, how to co-opt people, how to return. But yes, Henry Tudor is the most unlikely leader of all. But I think, in part, this is why the Yorkist exiles settle on him. In part, they have nobody else. These are men who are faithful to Edward V, the older of the disappeared princes. And without them, they're searching for a leader. They're light on Henry Tudor. And in part, he's, his very unlikeliness makes him useful. What happens in December 1483 in Wren Cathedral is that these exiles, these Yorkist exiles, agree to make Henry their king on condition that he marries the oldest daughter of Edward IV, Elizabeth of York. And in doing that, of course, they're suggesting some kind of reunification, some unification between Lancaster and York. But the fact is, the very fact that Henry doesn't have much of a claim to the throne means that as these Yorkists see it, he has to inherit the throne in right of his wife because she is the one with the claim. And I feel that Henry's very lack of royal legitimacy actually makes him useful for them because it allows them to turn the political clock back, to reset the political clocks to a time before Richard III and to restore the political landscape, thereby allowing them to regain their lands, titles, and influence. Of course, it doesn't work out like that, because in 1485, in November 1485, in Henry VII's first parliament, he explicitly avoids making any claim to the throne in right of his wife. In fact, she's not crowned until two years later. And people are aghast. They say, well, why don't you do this? And of course, the answer is that he wants to be king in his own right. Where exactly do the Yorkists come from, and what is their initial claim to the throne? So the Yorkist claim to the throne is twofold. First, the line from which Richard, Duke of York, the brother's father, is descended through Edmund of Langley, and he is the fourth son of Edward III, the great Plantagenet king. Then you have, of course, the Lancastrian claimant, John of Gaunt, who's the third son of Edward III. But then this is the line, the Yorkist line, that trumps the Lancastrian claim and it's via Lionel, Duke of Clarence, the second son of Edward III, and through him, through the female line, to Roger Mortimer. And this is the claim that the Yorkists invoked increasingly in the 1450s through genealogies, through these family trees. But, of course, the problem for the Yorkists is that it's through the female line of descent, not the male. And this was, this was how the Lancastrian the ruling Lancastrian dynasty tried to invalidate the Yorkist claim to say that it wasn't a true claim to the throne. But, but this was the claim that the Yorkists foregrounded. They put front and centre. Now, I realise your book is about the three brothers, but to what extent did their father, Richard, Duke of York, influence the relationship between the three and then how they would go on to exercise power? It's a very good question. It takes Richard of York a long time to 
make a claim to the throne. It takes him a decade. It takes him over a decade, in fact. The 1450s are a time in which a England politically is becoming incredibly unstable, a time in which the, the structures of, of politics and the structures of government are buckling and splintering. And people, not just the people at the top, but people much further down the ladder, have increasingly little confidence in the political system, headed up, of course, by this poor, inane king, Lancastrian king, Henry VI. But of course, an inane king is still a divinely ordained king. Henry VI has done nothing wrong. So Richard, in time-honoured fashion, he, he blames the councillors around the king. He doesn't blame the king himself. He blames the councillors around the king. And what he's trying to do is put himself in their place. So he's essentially trying to head up Henry VI's government. He doesn't claim the throne. He doesn't make any explicit claim to the throne at all. He has two periods as protector in the mid-1450s. It's only much, much later on when Henry VI has been passed from faction, from the Lancastrian faction around Margaret of Anjou and her son to the Yorkists and back again. It's only at that point, when the Yorkists have become political outcasts following the battle of the non-battle of Ludford Bridge in 1459, they flee abroad, they return. At that point in, in autumn 1460, that, that Richard strides into Westminster, lays his hand on, on the throne and says, I know of nobody who has a better right to the throne than me, at which point everybody's horrified. And you have this settlement whereby Henry VI remains king, but then Richard again is stitched into the line of descent. Richard and his sons are stitched into the line of descent. So it's at that point, by act of parliament, that these three brothers become heirs to the throne of England. Richard of York is an interesting one. He divides opinion, like so many historical figures. But for me, he, he has a terrible sense of timing and a bit of a tin ear. He tries to co-opt popular opinion. He never really succeeds. What the Yorkists do do, and it's largely not so much him, but Warwick the Kingmaker, who becomes one of the great drivers of the Yorkist usurpation, he co-ops the, the elites. He manages to co-op the financial elites of London and Calais. He manages to get the Italian banking community on the side, which is so important for the Yorkists in, in this bankrupt kingdom. He also manages to co-opt international opinion in the form of foreign princes like Philip of Burgundy, in the form of the Pope, which gives kind of spiritual validation to the Yorkist cause. And all of the things that Richard does, Edward IV does as well. He leans very hard on the financial communities to bankroll his government. Um, He's never quite the populist that he hopes he'll be. The Lancastrian cause still has great resonance within England, and you still get this in Barnet and Tewkesbury, where the battles of Barnet and Tewkesbury, where the Yorkist armies are smaller, but they're much better drilled. They're hardened fighters, they're disciplined, and they're fighting, on the whole, bigger armies, but they're popular armies. The figure who I think most resembles Richard of York is, is Richard III in fact. And I think that he, like Richard of York, does have this sense of himself as a great popular leader. He does invoke kingly ideals. But those ideals really disintegrate on contact with reality for, for poor Richard III. Um, and I think it's very interesting, his character, I think there's a real sense of cognitive dissonance there for him. He reads a lot, he studies a lot, he, he has been involved in lawmaking at a high level under his brother's government. And then he really thinks that he's well equipped as king 
he sees that Edward IV hasn't, in his in his view, hasn't got it right, and he thinks as king, this is how I'm going to rule. It doesn't work out for him. Probably the central figure in the book, I guess it's fair to say, is Edward IV. Yes. What What are your impressions of him as a king? I think on the one hand, he's a very effective king. He looks, walks and talks and behaves like people's traditional idea of a king. He's a great war leader, he's very charismatic, he's virile, he's a figurehead for the country, he's a unifying figurehead in the way that Henry VI could never be. So the contrast between Henry VI and Edward IV when he comes to the throne is this magnificent 18-year-old kid who's won his battles, who's been at the forefront of his armies, unlike Henry, who's not really there at all, um, in body or in mind. Edward also is, he immerses himself in government. He wants to appeal. He brings people very close to him. He lets people into the room. He wants people to see quite how attractive he is. And as I say, he's, he's a very able king. You see his, his monogram on documents, he's very busy. He's really involved, rolls up his sleeves, gets stuck in. And all this, as one would expect from a man who's Henry VIII's grandfather, six foot four inches in his stocking feet, you know, this, this, is, this is a new dawn for England in a, in a way. But on the other hand, it's not really, because what happens under the first decade of Edward's rule certainly is really more of the same. There is no governmental reform. There's factionalism, cronyism, and that is partly because there is a darker side to Edward IV, I think. At the heart of my understanding of Edward IV is this sense of him as a, a narcissist and, and a very compulsive individual. He's somebody who does, he does everything to excess. He's a great stuffer and guzzler. He eats and drinks an awful lot. He's probably a functioning alcoholic. Doctors typically stand at the king's side at table to watch, to regulate the consumption of kings. Doctors must have been horrified at Edward because he just ate too much and drank too much the whole time. At a time when, in medical opinion, sticking to the mean was the important thing, the middle, the middle ground, doing everything in moderation was the most important thing. Edward just pendulums between extremes. He's a real binger. And also, of course, there's this other very unattractive side of his character as a sexual predator. But as I say, he, he's, he's a king who, who is very able, but very compulsive. And he has these other, I think, characteristics of, of, of narcissism in which he, he tends to surround himself by people who tell him what he wants to hear. He doesn't take criticism particularly well. And we certainly see that in his disintegrating relationship with Warwick and with Clarence in the 1460s. So I think very, very able, in some respects, the archetype of a, a late medieval king, but certainly... I think his own proclivities and his own, his own behaviour, his characteristics let him down. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Can you imagine the Speaker of Parliament going effectively to ask the King to get on with killing his own brother? We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. 
That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Do you think it did go so wrong between him and Clarence to the extent that in the end one of them ended up dead? Firstly, I think that we have to understand how precarious Clarence's position is. Edward loves his family, it must be said, and when he comes to the throne aged 18, one of his priorities is to raise his brothers up, to make them royal dukes, George Duke of Clarence, Richard Duke of Gloucester, and to endow them accordingly. Now, both Clarence and Richard as younger sons, and they're 11 and 8 when Edward comes to the throne, so there's a big age gap between them. As younger sons, they are, um, as one chronicler says, not born to have any livelihoods. They don't have a lot of inherited wealth of their own. Their wealth is what Edward gives them. And a lot of that wealth, of course, is land and office confiscated from Lancastrians and redistributed by Edward. It's, It's land which is in the king's gift. And of course, What the king gives, the king can take away. And this sense of precariousness informs a lot of what Clarence does, and subsequently Richard as well, to be honest, and the conflict between Clarence and Richard in the 1470s. But in the 1460s, of course, Edward makes his own marriage. He makes a marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, who is a commoner, and she has an enormous family. And that family comes to court, and that kind of destabilises things, but more than destabilising, it reorients the Yorkist dynasty, it it sets it on a new footing. The Yorkist dynasty is now conceived as Edward IV, Elizabeth Woodville, and their offspring. And Clarence and Richard, who are royal dukes, who are heirs to the throne, are not. They are still incredibly important figures. In fact, Edward goes to great pains to build Clarence up as the highest duke in the land. He, he He is given an extraordinary endowment. He has a massive income, all given him by his brother. But there are a lot of competing forces at court. And what Clarence needs more than anything else is to make his position secure. The only way he can really do that is through marriage. And that is how he will gain hereditary wealth, hereditary power, that he can then hand on to his kids rather than wealth from the king's gift. And of course, in order to do this, and what he wants to do is to marry the eldest daughter of 
Warwick the Kingmaker, through which he will then gain access to the great Warwick estates. Edward forbids him to do this, so Edward goes off and makes his own marriage. Meanwhile, a lot of Yorkist courtiers are busy marrying into the king's family by marrying the queen's relations, but Edward stops Clarence from marrying. So Clarence feels this great sense of precarity, even though he has this extremely exalted position. It's very precarious. And Warwick then starts whispering in Clarence's ear, saying, you can do better. And there is a great quote from a contemporary chronicler which says that Clarence had a mind too conscious of a daring deed. He was a very impressionable kid, still in his teens, and this very powerful, very charismatic older cousin, Warwick, takes him under his wing and says, come on, what about going this way instead? So I think that it's this question of power and wealth, really, and, and the fragility of Yorkist power and wealth that is the heart of what goes wrong between Edward and Clarence. And so Clarence ultimately rebels against Edward. And then, as we alluded to earlier, um, Clarence is, is killed. Did, in the end, did Edward have any choice but to execute him? I think he had a lot of choice, actually. But what happens in 1471, after the events that you're talking about, after Clarence and Warwick's rebellion, after the brief re-adeption of Henry VI, who's brought out of the tower, put on the throne, and Edward flees into exile, comes back... And as we were saying, he lays waste, together with the reunited Clarence and Gloucester um, of the Lancastrian cause. Clarence, in 1471, is ostensibly he's re rehabilitated. He has already married Warwick's older daughter. Now Edward confirms him as Earl of Warwick, as the inheritor to the Earl of Warwick. And all seems set fair. But Clarence isn't trusted He's not trusted by the Yorkist establishment, that establishment that I was talking about, which consists of the Queen's blood, consists of Yorkist courtiers who've married into the Queen's family. And another figure emerges, who is, of course, the youngest brother, Richard. Now, Richard has performed with extreme distinction during this recent intra-Yorkist fighting. He's been constantly loyal to Edward. He's been unswerving. He's followed Edward into exile. He's come back. He's fought like a demon. Of the three brothers, it's Richard who in 1471 is, is held up as a martial hero, this very slight figure who, who physically is nothing much to look at, who fights with incredible ferocity. And he, as I say, he's proved his loyalty. So you have this situation where these two younger brothers are at court, and it's Richard who is preferred, who marries with royal consent the younger sister of the Earl of Warwick, the dead Earl of Warwick, which really puts the skids under a lot of Clarence's claims in that regard. And so you have a situation where Clarence is kind of shut out of the Yorkist establishment. People don't need to have long memories to remember what he did. He was responsible for killing the Queen's father, killing one of the Queen's brothers, killing William Herbert, who was another, he's one of Edward's right-hand men in the 1460s, and it's Richard that people prefer. So when Clarence and Richard are at each other's throats over the question of the Warwick inheritance, it's Richard who, although Edward claims to be an impartial arbiter, it's Richard who is favoured. Now, that, again, that, that spat between Clarence and Gloucester apparently gets resolved, but the bad blood between Edward and Clarence never does, and it develops into this incredibly toxic atmosphere where each mistrusts the other. Clarence is alleged to have said that he believed Edward was intending to consume him as a candle consumes him burning, which is a devastating image. He refuses to come to court, and when he does, 
He refuses to accept any of the king's hospitality, any of his food or drink, because he believes the king is going to poison him. And eventually, in 1477, you get a situation where Clarence is actively flouting the king's authority, flouting the king's laws. So perhaps it's the case that, that given this disintegration of this relationship, this appalling disintegration of the relationship between the two, it is inevitable. But what happens ultimately in late 1477 is a Yorkist establishment stitch up. The parliament that convicts Clarence of treason in early 1478 is meticulously arranged in a sequence of council meetings in the run-up to the opening of the parliament. And nobody dissents from the verdict. The Yorkist establishment effectively closes ranks. And you have this ex extraordinary situation when, after Clarence is convicted and taken back to the tower to await execution, Edward just sits on his hands. He doesn't do anything at all. And it's left to the Speaker of the Parliament, William Allington, Sir William Allington, who has very close connections with the Queen's family, with Elizabeth Woodville's family, who leads a delegation to the Lords to ask them, to ask Edward to get on with it. Can you imagine the Speaker of Parliament going effectively to ask the King to get on with killing his own brother? So you do have a situation where Clarence is completely locked out. He's locked out of the establishment. And I think that's the key thing, really. And, and I, effectively, Edward is, I feel, is almost pressured into taking this final step by the situation that he's created. And then a few years later, of course, Edward dies in 1483 and we come to one of the most pivotal moments in, in this story, because obviously Edward has his son alive, Edward V, and uh, the throne is taken from him by Richard. What's your understanding of why Richard decided to usurp the throne? I think it's a complex of things. I think we have to remember with Richard, first and foremost, that of all the brothers, he's the one who has been formed in this period of extreme instability. He's eight when Edward takes the throne. And in that same year, he's already fled into exile with Clarence to escape a Lancastrian army as it descends on London. He's fled to the Low Countries, aged eight. He's known nothing really but political instability. And this, this extraordinarily fluid political landscape in which friends become enemies very quickly, in which old loyalties are quickly fractured and transferred. New relationships are made. Those relationships are then destroyed. And I think that, again, we have to understand this relationship between the three brothers as being horribly affected by the prevailing political atmosphere. So I think there is a sense that Richard, he's somebody who he craves certainty. I think his, his response to instability is to look for ideals, as we were saying before, is to look for, he looks to books, he looks to precedent, he looks to the law. He, he wants an ordered world, like many at the time. And, and it's in, in these things that he finds order. Now, it's also the case that the same things that make Clarence feel, feel this great sense of instability in the 1460s and then in the 1470s, that also applies to Richard. Because, of course, he is the inheritor of, of, of the Warwick estates. He, he, has, he has become the great lord of the north, the greatest lord, really, since, since the Norman Conquest, and massive endowments by Edward, who, again, has set his brother up fantastically in the north. Um, but, again, those settlements are founded on quite fragile ground still. And you then, with the death of Edward IV, you have the removal of this great centripetal force that has held everything together. Now, like Edward or loathe him, 
he's been a king. He's been somebody who's fulfilled the functions of the king because he has kept the body politic together. He's been strong. He's now removed. And once again, you have this very uncertain situation in the weeks after his death of an heir, Edward V, who's 12. So you know that there is going to be this period of a minority government. So the question is then, who controls the king? And it's not just Richard who is feeling distinctly wobbly in this situation. It's everybody. People are wondering what's going to happen. People are manoeuvring for position. And that's true of nobody more than the people around the old king, the dead king, Edward IV. William Hastings, his chamberlain, who has been Edward's rock, he's his closest friend. He's the man who really is at the head of the Yorkist establishment. He now has nowhere to go. He doesn't get on particularly well with the Woodville family, with the, as they now are, the Queen's family. And you then have, of course, the Duke of Buckingham, who has married into the Woodville family, rather against his will, uh, as, a, as, a, as a child, but who's been frozen out of power. He has all the status, none of the power. Edward IV has not got on with him at all. So I think with Richard, I think there is this sense of, of fragility, there's this sense of uncertainty, and it's something that, as I said, I think particularly affects Richard. But also, there's a sense that he is, he's old royal blood. He's an heir, in a way. If you, if you, look, at, if you look at the Yorkist line of descent, he, he's the next in line. And he is certainly, as his father was, he is certainly entitled to be protector of the realm. Now, then we get into the question of what actually it means to be protector of the realm, because there are all sorts of different definitions. And earlier on in the 15th century, where, again, you have minorities, you have the long minority of Henry VI, the question of what the protector is, is it just the head of the council, and the, a protector is a kind of ceremonial title or a kind of honorific, meaning a kind of spokesperson, or does it actually mean somebody who is defender of the realm and keeper of the king's person, now, royal councils always split up those two roles because they know that when you have an extremely powerful nobleman who is defender of the realm and who also has the king, which is kind of possession being nine-tenths of the law, you then have a, have a situation in which that nobleman, that protector, becomes very powerful indeed. But this is what Richard wanted. We can be pretty sure of that. And, of course, the council doesn't let him have it. And so I do think it's this combination of entitlement, feeling that this is his by right, and also the sense of, if I don't get this, then I'm going to find myself in a very precarious situation indeed. So, of course, he, he makes a preemptive strike. And as part of this, we have the disappearance of the two princes in the tower, which is a, one of those mysteries that's been discussed for centuries. What, what in your view, do you think happened to the princes? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> um, well, it's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I think, in a sense, our view of what happened to the princes isn't so important. I think we have to listen to what people thought at the time had happened to the princes. And in the summer of 1483, we know that they disappeared. We have these accounts of them playing and shooting, practicing their archery in the tower gardens, then withdrawn into the tower itself, seen at the windows, then not seen at all. And there are these accounts of attempts by the Queen's family to break them out of the tower, which go horribly wrong. Uh, and then we have accounts of their supposed murders. Elizabeth Woodville is supposed to have heard that they've been killed, and, and this account of her going absolutely crazy with, with pain and grief um, in Westminster Sanctuary, where she's fled, of course. And 
it's at this point that things start to change. We know that because suddenly there's talk of Henry Tudor, there's talk of the Duke of Buckingham, who, of course, is Richard's right-hand man, who goes into rebellion against him quite extraordinarily. Um, you have Yorkist rebels. You have those men loyal to the memory of Edward IV, to the memory, supposedly, of the princes who are now presumed dead, who who rebel against Richard III and the rebellion is unsuccessful. They flee into exile, they flee to Brittany, they take up with Henry Tudor, as we said before. But the thing that is really the problem for Richard is that he has no counter-narrative. People believed, the Yorkists who rebel against Richard believed that he was responsible for the death of the princes, that the princes were killed on his watch. Now, maybe this was a mistake, maybe it was something that was done to earn his approval, maybe it's a Thomas Beckett scenario. We don't know. We have no way of knowing. But we do know that the rumour of those deaths stuck to Richard and he could never, ever shake it off. Is that, do you think, the main reason why his reign was never really secure? I mean, over the course of his two years, he never really had a solid grip on power. I think it's one of the reasons. I think it's the reason for the, the rebellion in 1483, which, if it doesn't divide the body politic down the middle, then it at least destabilises it massively. And finally, I think then you have Richard's response to the rebellion after he's put it down, the political solution that he settles on, which is that he relies more and more on the base of people that have brought him to power. So he comes to power hoping to be a king for all his people, but he finds himself in practice relying more and more on a small coterie of councillors. And this is partly, I think, he boxes himself into a corner because of his view of the rebellion. As I said before, Richard is somebody who, he's not accustomed to see things, I think, in shades of grey. And we see this in his proclamations after the rebellion. He talks about the way of virtue against the way of vice. Virtue is associated with him, vice is associated with the rebels. He sees this in terms of a, a, a kind of Manichaean division of the world, uh, a kind of morality. This is, this is a straight fight between the forces of good against the forces of darkness. And this is language that he enlists and repeats and repeats and repeats. And we see it again and again and again in the language of his reign. But for all that, he is still getting there. He, is, he has put the rebellion down. He has affirmed himself as king in his first parliament with the titulus regius, which is a problematic document, but nevertheless, it's an act of parliament. But then, in the spring of 1484, his own son and heir, Edward of Midlam, dies unexpectedly. And that, for Richard, is a body blow, because suddenly he no longer has a dynasty of his own. He has to work out what he's going to do, because this new line, this new Yorkist line, has effectively been quashed. He and his wife, Anne Neville, who, it must be said, is responsible for much of Richard's northern support swinging behind him as Duke of Gloucester. She's the daughter of Warwick the Kingmaker. They're never going to have any more kids. They only have one son and he's dead. And in fact, then Anne dies the following year. So Richard then is, a, is in a situation where he's very much on his own. And that, I think, is another key reason for the continued instability in his reign. But I do think that ultimately a lot of it is to do with Richard's response to rebellion. He wasn't able to govern in the way that he proclaimed. He, he wasn't able to govern for, for all the kingdom. He wasn't able to make good on his promises not to tax people effectively. He, he resorts to the kind of mechanisms that Edward IV used, certainly in kind, if not in name. 
And he is reliant on this ever-diminishing cabal of counsellors. You have a situation where people like William Catesby, who's a lawyer, is lecturing Richard on what to do and how to govern in 1485. And he finds himself a prisoner of this of this situation that he's created. So I don't think it's just the princes. I don't think it is even perhaps primarily the princes. They're the catalyst for all the problems, but I think then the problems accumulate. As we know, um, Richard is, is killed by, by Henry at the Battle of Bosworth in 1485. Do you see that as the end of this family drama or does its residue continue? Well, its residue definitely continues, I think. that For the Tudors, the Yorkists are problematic in many ways. I mean, firstly, they are, they're a legitimate royal line where the Tudors have barely any legitimacy at all. And, of course, Yorkists on, on both lines, on Richard Duke of York's line and on Edward IV and the Woodville's line, they continue. Now, of course, Richard's line and... John de la Poole, Earl of Lincoln, who is kind of his nominated successor, who continues the insurgency against Henry VII in the early years of the reign. That continues. Also, the very problematic issue of Henry's own legitimacy, which of course comes through his wife, even though he's tried to sideline it. For Henry, of course, his offspring, Prince Arthur, and the boy who becomes Henry VIII, are the embodiment of the unification of the rose, both red and white, the Tudor rose. But Henry's validation as king, Henry's legitimation as king, rests on the removal of the princes in the tower. And as we know, what if the princes aren't dead? What if they come back? What if they are, what if the younger of them is Perkin Warbeck? And we see this dilemma in those Yorkists who have transferred their affections to Henry Tudor, presuming that the princes are dead. If one of them comes back from the dead, then suddenly they have a prior allegiance to the princes in the tower. And of course, this informs the Perkin Warbeck conspiracy, as I say, it informs the longest lasting conspiracy, the most troubling conspiracy in Henry VII's reign. It takes him years and years and years effectively to quash, and it goes on. And it's interesting how Henry VIII, when he becomes king, he refers to Yorkists as White Rose. Now, it's odd because he is a descendant of White Rose himself. He's a descendant of Edward IV, his grandfather, but he sees the, the White Rose becomes the enemy the book is primarily a tale of three brothers, but how important are the women in this story, the, you know, their mother and their wives? The women are very important indeed. I think you, you look at the, the matriarch, the family's matriarch, Cecily, Duchess of York, who's an indefatigable character, who, whose influence continues on and on and on into the 1480s. You have to think of people like um, Margaret of York, um, Edward's sister, who becomes Margaret of Burgundy, who's married to Charles the Bold of Burgundy. She becomes an exceptionally important player, Elizabeth Woodville. Then Margaret Beaufort, of course. And in a way, the rebellion of 1483 is confected by two women, Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort. So yes, the women are very important and they loom very large in this story. Although this is an English story, how much do events on the continent actually intrude in this? To a massive degree. I think, first of all, we have to see the gathering storm clouds of civil war in the 1450s as a direct result of England's failure in France. So these are the aftershocks of the Hundred Years' War. It's the war coming home, if you like. But from then on in, yes, those alliances are incredibly important. Edward's decision to tear himself away from an alliance with France, which is really the superpower of the day with Louis XI of France 
and to ally himself instead with the Dukes of Burgundy, his wife's in-laws, is absolutely crucial. That relationship with Burgundy affects the whole of the reign and indeed the relationship with Louis XI as well. Um, Louis Louis XI is a fantastic character, as we know, the Spider King. He's an extraordinary figure. He's this antic, absurdist king, so unpredictable. Even he doesn't know what he's going to do from day to day, I think. And of course, you have the situation then in Richard's reign, where effectively he tries an incredibly assertive foreign policy, which, unfortunately for him, spectacularly backfires. And all the time, this sense of external players, of the kings of France, of dukes of Burgundy, trying to manipulate English exiles against the reigning kings of England, the Yorkist kings of England, is crucial. It's at the heart of the story. I noticed that a few reviewers of the book have likened current political battles in the 21st century to some of the machinations of the Wars of the Roses era. Do you think there's any legitimacy to that comparison? (laughs) I think it's a massive elephant trap, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, firstly, drawing analogies between these two incredibly dissimilar periods is, is... dangerous. Um, These are events that happened a very long time ago in a world that is so remote from ours and so strange that it's very difficult to imagine in a way. Um, By the same token, I think any resemblance to persons living would be, it would would be um, invidious and, and totally misleading to draw any resemblance. I think having said that, there's one thing that was constantly in my mind when I was writing the book, And that is that I think writing, exploring this period against the backdrop of current events is instructive for one reason. I think that back, say, in the 1990s, when centrist politics prevailed, it was very difficult to imagine a time when the political landscape could be so splintered, could be so polarised, a time when it was very difficult to imagine not simply two factions, but factions within factions, and then the landscape transforming at lightning speed, often in the space of days and weeks. Of course, the events of 1483 being case in point. But now, I think that our fractured political landscape and the way that factions, that political factions and political interest groups, often quite small, can be the key players in the politics of the age, of our age, make it somehow resonant and I think perhaps easier to understand from that reason. Of course, history, is, as the great E.H. Carr said, is a dialogue between the past and the present and whether one likes it or not, our view of history is inevitably coloured by the age in which we live. So in that respect, yes, I do think that there is some resonance. That was Thomas Penn. His book, The Brothers York, and English Tragedy, is out now, published by Alan Lane. You can also read a feature by Thomas about the three brothers in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thomas will also be speaking at our History Weekend events in Winchester and Chester this autumn. You can find out more at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Dominic Sandbrook will be talking about Britain from 1979 to 1982.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.